Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, We are in Ruth chapter 3, if you would turn there with me. If you need a Bible, there are some in the seats right under the seat in front of you. And uh, Ruth is, I don't know, towards the beginning of the Bible, not too far in. So we are at the point in this book where you're creeping forward to the edge of your seat. Because what's going to happen is happening in this chapter. Uh, you might uh, have be a book reader, hopefully. Sometimes, and you get into a good book, and it's getting late, and yet you're at that part where you can't put it down, and you're going to keep going because it's right there, and uh, then it's two in the morning or three in the morning, and you're mad at yourself, but you saw what happened, and then you can't sleep because you're so jacked up. So that's where we are in this book, and it is that kind of book in the Bible, and thank God for it. Don't forget, the main purpose of this book is simply to show the lineage of King David, who are King David's descendants. And yet, uh, well, that and a fulfillment of God's promises. God told Abraham that he would have a son, and through that son, salvation would come to all different peoples on the earth. And this book is kind of giving you a play-by-play on earth how God fulfilled that promise. And isn't it wonderful that God isn't dull? I know I've said that before, but God could have just fulfilled that in ways that were unremarkable, and he doesn't. He does it this way, and so it's a delight. So just love God's Word. That's a good application right away. And so I hope as we go through a book like this, it would increase your appreciation for the gift that God's Word is to you, the beauty of it, the, the goodness of it. And so let's uh, read chapter 3, pray, and then I'll remind us where we are at in the story. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lays. Lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. 
I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's ask God's help. Father, may the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so Ruth, we saw in chapter 1, takes time, uh, takes place during the time of the judges. So if you remember scripture, God created everything. Everything was ruined in sin, and God promised, though, that he wouldn't destroy man whose heart was just greatly evil, but promised redemption, promised salvation. But his salvation was according to his promise, not our own whims, and that promise was going to come through a man, uh, a descendant of those that he had chosen in love be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, and so on. So the entire Bible is formed around that promise. Everything in Scripture is looking at God's promise and giving you a play-by-play on how God's going to make it happen. And he was going to bring it through a people chosen for his name, Israel. There were select people within that tribe, the tribe of Judah, or between in that people, the tribe of Judah, that would be the one through whom God brought it. So that's who we're following here. Now, the book of Judges was a lawless time. Pastor Jeff said it. Everybody was just doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Very parallel to our day. Everybody was given to doing what they thought was right and good and pleasing to their own selfish feelings. And so it was utter chaos. That's what the world is when we don't have a transcendent God that we looked at all things. It's absolute chaos. Everybody's their own little God, which means everybody's their own little tyrant that demands you do exactly what they want to do. And if you don't, there will be judgment. So that was that day. And in the midst of it is this lovely story that probably hardly anybody knew about at that time. This is a small place in the outlying areas of Israel. And God is, in the midst of that chaos, bringing about his, uh, his Savior, his promised fulfillment to redeem us from our sin. That's what this is about. So Boaz is a descendant of Judah, is a descendant of Abraham. And the other places Boaz shows up in the Bible are in the genealogies connecting Jesus to David, to Abraham, or to Judah and to Abraham. So Boaz isn't known in the Bible except in this book and in the very beginning of Matthew and Luke's Gospels. So just to give you a wider picture, isn't it wonderful how God works? All right, so God is a God who likes adventure stories. God is a God who enjoys twists and turns. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And for you, 
you can take away from that right away. You can trust God. There's nothing you can't trust him in. There's nothing. He is utterly committed to his promises, utterly committed to doing what is best for his people in love. And that's what this book is just screaming to you as it shows you this wonderful, beautiful story. You can trust him. You can absolutely trust him. All right, so where are we at in this story? Well, the book of Ruth is about uh, rags to riches. Naomi said at the end of chapter 1 that she is empty. God has laid his heavy hand on her and she has nothing. And she doesn't. Her husband is dead. Her two sons are dead. She comes back to Israel utterly desolate. And the story is how God makes her full. And we are right at the tipping point in how God's going to do that. So when they returned, Naomi, as you remember, had a daughter, two daughters-in-law. One returned to her people, or but one came with her, Ruth. Ruth is a convert. Ruth is somebody who turned from false ways of living, from her own sin, from false gods, to the one true loving, uh, one true and loving God, and she has given her life in care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Ruth, if you remember in chapter 2, had been working very hard. She went out to glean in the fields, that is to pick up what those harvesting had left laying on the ground. And by this point in the story, she's done this for three, four months. Day in, day out, except on the Sabbath. All day long, sun up to sundown. She has been working herself to the bone. And she's in a widow, a young widow. She has no stability And she, out of love for her mother-in-law, is only working. And so, in this story, Naomi, who has been well supplied by Ruth, now wants to make sure that Ruth is well supplied by her in the way she can do it. And so, Naomi cares for Ruth. And Naomi explains to Ruth that she wants to seek rest for her that she wants things to be well with her, that she wants to provide her the stability and goodness of a marriage and a home and the provision that she doesn't have to work like she's been working. So keep that in your mind, the goodness of God in giving us marriage. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, Naomi's plan is, I don't really know what to make of this plan. It's very, I think it's generous to say it's um, unorthodox, There's nowhere in the Bible that anything like this is uh, said that we should do. There's, it's just no place in the Bible that you'll say if like you're a widowed young woman that you should go to where a man is sleeping after he's had his belly full and had a couple glasses of wine when he's happy and uncover his feet and then lay there like that. (laughs) I know Christianity has a bad reputation some way and treating women, but we don't. It's not in the Bible. This is odd. And we also don't know anything in history where this kind of thing has happened. So either this is some local custom or this is Naomi's plan. We don't know. But it's odd. Now, okay, please help to you interpreting the Bible. There are some places in the Bible where it's just simply describing what happened. And it isn't proscribing to you how you should do things. Do you understand what I mean? This is just describing what happened here without commending it to you. So fathers, if you or mothers, if you decided this is how you wanted to help your daughter find a husband, the elders 
would bring trouble to your door. Like, don't do this. And yet in these circumstances, for whatever reason, this is Naomi's plan. It is to go kind of at night, making sure that Boaz doesn't see her, waiting until he's as happy as he could be, observing where he goes to sleep. She obviously knows his schedule very fairly well, that he would be at the threshing floor. Threshing, again, is where you separate the seed, the good part of the grain from the chaff. Uh, you could do it by running wheels over it or the hooves of animals or beating it, whatever. So he's been working there all day. He's feasted. Watch where he lies down. Wait till he's good and sound asleep. Sneak in on tiptoe. Uncover his feet and then lie there and then do what he says. <laughs> all right. That's what happened. I, and I think... You have a woman in Naomi who knows the character of Boaz and trusts that Boaz won't take advantage of it. And hopefully knows the character of Ruth and knows that Ruth won't trade sexual intimacy for a favor. And so I think Naomi is trusting in God, this plan through prayer and whatever comes up, and she trusts that they will not take advantage of what we would say probably shouldn't be done. And it works. Um, one of my daughters told me that my wife went into her room when she was sleeping and was rubbing her head and startled her. That's what happens here. He's laying there sleeping, his fear uncovered, and he's startled, and he twists around, and there's a woman laying at his feet. This is pretty odd. And he doesn't recognize Ruth, though Ruth, if you remember, has been working day in and day out in his fields, and I'm sure they've had some kind of daily interaction. She doesn't recognize him. It's night. She's covered, whatever. Who are you? <laughs> you know, put yourself there. <laughs> what is going on here? And so Ruth here goes outside of her mother-in-law's directions, and she was to wait until he told her what to do and then do what he said. Instead, she identifies herself, I'm Ruth. Spread your wings over me. Take care of me. What Ruth does here is give a marriage proposal of sorts. That's the language. Again, this is different than how the Bible would proscribe us to go into marriage. Typically, the man should take initiative. And yet here... Ruth is taking some kind of an initiative and saying, take care of me. I, I'll marry you, please. So you have this great humility again of Ruth. She is identified as a worthy woman. And this language of spread your wings over me, I think this is readily transferable. We don't say that, but there's plenty of places in Scripture. Psalm 91.4, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. Uh, I listened to a podcast not too many weeks ago on how to train your dragon. It was a good recommended movie for fathers to watch with their sons. It's a, it's a good father-son kind of movie. And there's a part in there where Hiccup is fighting the big evil dragon at the end, if you remember. He's falling out of the sky and his dragon wraps him up in his wings and saves his life. So we understand this picture. And so she is saying, rescue me. 
Bring me under your protection, under your provision. Uh, As I've been saying throughout it, if you're a feminist, there is a reason you despise the Bible. You just can't stand the picture of a woman in her weakness and in her need of a guy. This isn't belittling to women. This isn't thinking women are dumb or completely useless or anything like that. This is a, a picture of how God made man, male and female, and that they are very different. This is beautiful, isn't it? Isn't this gorgeous? And so Boaz promises Ruth that he'll do it, but does tell her that there's a relative nearer than him who has the first responsibility to take care of Ruth, Naomi, and their family. Okay, now, if you're in neighborhood small groups, you're maybe studying through this, but let me just again remind us what's going on here. God's law in the Bible flows from God's character. God is love. And God's law is a law of love. All of God's laws are either about us loving God who has first loved us and saved us, or us loving others created in God's image, particularly others in God's family, the church, so that we can show ourselves to be a people of love because God is love. So all of God's laws are love. And this law given to the nation of Israel was how to take care of your family when they're in need and destitution. This is a welfare law, if you will. If a woman's husband died, others of his family had the duty in love to take care of her, to keep the land within the family, within the tribe, to marry her and take care of her and have children by her so that her deceased husband's name would continue. If the fields, the land had to be sold in order to generate income so they could survive, the family members had a duty to buy the land so that the family and generations to come wouldn't be without means of creating income and sustenance. It's a really good law. It's provision, it's protection, it's thinking generationally. This is loving. That's what's happening here. And so Boaz is one of Naomi's dead husband's relatives. And so he's one of those that, according to God's law of love, has this loving obligation to purchase the land that it looks like Naomi had to sell. And then that would come with the duty to marry Ruth and live with her as husband and wife. That's what's happening here. But there is a relative nearer than Boaz. Unnamed. We don't know who he is. We'll meet him next chapter. And that kind of... Shoot, right? Why this other guy? Couldn't this just be like, they live happily ever after right here? That's what I felt like when I read this. Like, ay, 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 ay. More stuff. Can it ever be simple? This is a test of our faith in God here, isn't it? This is our lives. They're not linear. God is a God who tests us. God is a God who puts obstacles and twists when we just want a straight shot, 60 degrees sunny, 
broken, like no turns, no hills, no surprises, just come on. God's not interested in that. He's not interested in your cheap comfort at all. Now, of course, you know that. I brought this up before. Nobody reads a book where everything's good. It's, it's terrible. It's, this is why a lot of the Disney movies recently are trash, because nobody suffers anything. There's no villain. There's no sacrifice. There's no death. So I think Harry Potter, Harry lives. <laughs> he should die. He should give himself. He doesn't end up really sacrificing anything. Everybody else has to sacrifice for Harry, but not Harry. And the Bible's not like that. God has not built that kind of world. God wants to build a world where he's glorified in our weaknesses with all the twists and turns where we have to trust him. And can't you trust him? That's your life. So that's what's going on here. So Boaz, being a good man, promises to do as Ruth says if this other redeemer is unwilling to redeem. So Ruth returns home to Naomi, tells her everything, and Naomi, knowing Boaz's character, seeming to know that Boaz really does love Ruth, isn't going to go one more day without this being resolved. You're going to have to wait till next week. What I want to do is apply this in a couple ways. I want to uh, help us understand how, well, I, this is probably uh, asking too much of me and us, but at least to think through how does it work in a world where God is absolutely in control and yet your planning and your acting really matters. I think that's one of the main things we see in, in Ruth. Because there's a temptation, particularly in Christianity, to think that if God's in control, then it really doesn't matter what I do. That we deny kind of physical, daily, earthly realities and think that it's just all spiritual. And so I want to kind of do that generally and then apply it specifically here to how we see this marriage coming to be. Does that sound good? Any other things you want me to do? No? So, uh, you maybe have heard the saying, this is how I want you to get a handle on it. If you heard the saying, sometimes you're the best answer to your own prayers. You ever hear that saying? Never heard that? Maybe it's not a saying and I just thought of it. <laughs> I've heard it. The, the, the premise is you're praying for something and you often neglect to realize that the answer to your prayers lies a lot in what you're going to do. So I was thinking, it's spring cleanup time, especially after this winter and these heavy snows. There's a lot of limbs down, and your yards look like rubbish. And if you're a parent with kids, it's coming. Maybe this weekend will be cleanup day after the snow melts and the ground hardens a little bit, or maybe two weekends from now, whatever. And if you're a parent with kids that you want to involve in spring cleanup, one of the things you know is it's going to be difficult because <laughs> kids don't want to spend all day cleaning up the yard they want to get out the bikes and go do other things and you want to involve them in the work 
And so you might be praying, God, help this to go well. (laughs) Anticipating it not going so well. And as you pray that, one of the things hopefully that comes to mind is, I myself am in the place, exclusive to anybody else, to, to do the things that need to be done to make it go as well as possible. You can... Make a plan that the kids are aware of so that nothing surprises them. You could have a list of things that you want to get done and then restrain the thing once they get it done saying, oh, oh, there's more. You could provide a reward at the end of it. You getting up with a good attitude. You not, like all of that, you could, you are in the position to be the one who determines mainly how that day is going to go or not. And it's that kind of a thing that we see happening in these pages. We all believe that God is completely in control over everything. This is the hallmark of being a Christian. This is God's world. There is nothing that happens apart from Him. All is according to His plan. Look at this book. I would assume Naomi had been praying for and hoping in God for a resolution to Ruth's life and to her life. And Naomi is in a position that nobody else is in to do the most towards that resolution. It rests on Naomi, largely, how she goes about this with wisdom, with godliness, with prayer. And Naomi does it. Naomi knows that God is sovereign, that God has a plan, that God is in control. And Naomi realizes that she is the person best positioned to help Ruth gain the rest she needs. And so in faith, Naomi plans. Now this, again, is a rather unconventional plan, but setting that aside, she explains the plan to Ruth. Ruth as Pastor Mark talked about our time of confession, responds with teachability, humility. She does everything that Naomi tells her to do. Even, get this young ladies, listening to her mother telling her how to dress. <laughs> More on that in a moment. And so Naomi trusting in God, concocts his plan. Ruth, trusting in God, and Naomi fulfills it. And where is God in all of this? Well, he's doing what God always does. He's controlling everything. He's blessing their faith. All glory. When you read this book, one of your main responses will probably be, all glory to God. Why? Because you know that all of Naomi's plans, all of Ruth's acting, all of Boaz's acting really depends solely on God's blessing, right? They could do this perfectly, and apart from God's favor, it is fruitless. So God gets the glory. Now, it is true that God often blesses us in spite of our laziness, in spite of our acting wrongly. God's blessing on us is all grace. And I just 
learn in this book the need to act diligently. The need to act wisely. The need to be teachable and humble. The need to do what's right. Because God is sovereign. and So, let's say you're in a relationship that's struggling. What's your plan to address it? Because probably just continuing to do the same thing isn't going to be helpful. That's what got you into the problem. So what's on your part? What's your faith, prayerful plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to pray about it? Where do you need to adjust your attitude? Where do you need to change your behavior? So see that God works through our diligence, works through our planning, works through our attitudes, works through our humble response, listening to the wisdom of others. That's one of the lessons we've learned. Now let's apply that specifically to marriage. Well, one of the striking things I saw in verse 1 is that Naomi refers to marriage as, what word does she use there? Rest. <laughs> you guys have no sense of humor. <laughs> is your, would you describe your marriage as rest? <laughs> oh. Now, of course, this is in reference to all of the hard work that Ruth has been doing agriculturally harvesting. But still, there is this picture in Scripture as, of marriage as the companionship that brings peace in a, and rest in a world that's mad. That's one of the good gifts of marriage. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know. I, all right, let's say a year later they're married. Ruth is probably going, and. I had it much better in the fields. <laughs> and Boaz is probably like, oh, man, before Ruth, my life was pretty good. <laughs> oh. Now, I know that those of you with perfect marriages can't believe I'm saying anything like that. Well, God bless you. But marriage is this. Okay, marriage is rest, but much of the restfulness and peacefulness of marriage depends on your behavior and your attitude, doesn't it? This is one of the blessings of this book. Boaz is described as what kind of a man in chapter 2? Remember? Huh? Worthy. Now that uh, both referred to his worth, his wealth, his strength, but also his godliness. He's a, he's a godly guy. He's the kind that you hope for your daughter. And here in verse 11 of chapter 3, what word does it use to describe Ruth? She's a worthy woman. This is the word used in Proverbs 31. <clears throat> She's got, she has gained a reputation in Israel. She's no longer a Moabitess here. She's no longer a foreigner, an alien. Her reputation is now as a godly woman. She's a good woman. She's a hardworking, faithful, diligent, godly woman. And so one of the things you can learn in applying to your marriage is your godliness will determine the peace and restfulness of your marriage. 
If you are in of yourself committed to godliness and not ultimately committed to the godliness of your spouse, to yours, that will contribute largely to the peace and rest of your marriage. And so if you're praying for more peace in your marriage, start with your godliness. Start with yourself. Now, marriage, um, the, the single greatest factor that contributes to the peace and restfulness of marriage is forgiveness. You know that? Is that true? For you? Because you're going to have all kinds of sin in your marriage. I mean, you're going to be surprised at how sinful you can be that you didn't experience when you were single. You're going to be surprised at some of the things you'll say and some of the things that you think. How selfish you can be and how harsh. And then add kids. And, and so the greatest single factor, peace and rest in your marriage will be your humble repentance of your sin, specifically to your husband or wife, asking very humbly for their forgiveness for your sin. The marriages who have the least peace are those where they have the least confession of sin. This is applicable to all your relationships, by the way, but we're talking here about marriage because that's what we're dealing with. And then the peacefulness and rest of your marriage is going to be largely based on whether or not you're willing to forgive. It just... Say, I forgive you. And then fight to not let it dominate your view of the other person. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean you forget it. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you never emotionally deal with it anymore. Forgiveness just means you have faith in God to do the hard work of not letting it affect your view and treatment of the other person because you have forgiven it. Because that's how God treats us. His forgiveness isn't that he has like taken a magic eraser to his memory. That It's just that he no longer treats you according to your sin. He treats you as a sinless, righteous man or woman in Christ. This is the essential to peace and rest in your marriage. So how are you doing there? <clears throat> so what we're doing here is we're saying... In the book of Ruth, we see God completely, utterly in control. And it's delightful, this story that he's weaving. And yet his control is exercised through the decisions of these folks. They have to act. They have to plan. They have to do it. So what I'm saying is let's learn from them. Let's learn what it looks like to live Christian and using marriage as a test case. And one of the first things is the need for peace and rest in marriage. It's going to be largely based on your humble willingness to grow in the Lord particularly in the expression of forgiveness. Okay? So how many of you would pray to God, I would like a more peaceful marriage? Well, what are you going to do? You're, you're in the position and nobody else is in to do it. God is calling you to do it. Now, maybe what you need to do is go get the advice of an older, godlier woman like a Naomi. Naomi. Or an older godlier man. 
Maybe it's that you need to go home right after the service and humbly get on your knees before your husband or your wife. See, we're the kind of church that think both men and women sin. I don't know if you know that. Most churches don't think women sin anymore. It's only the men. Both. (laughs) And ask for his forgiveness, for your attitude, for your harshness, for your badgering him until he can't take it anymore. And maybe you need, as a husband, to ask for her forgiveness for your lack of emotional intimacy and listening and talking with her, whatever it is. But now let's take a step before marriage because there's a lot to learn here. What, how many of you are hoping to get married someday? Seriously, how many of you would like to get married someday? Come on, raise it up. Now look around. <laughs> we can learn a lot. How many of you are praying already for marriage? You're a younger man, you're praying, God, provide me a godly wife, provide me a wife. As a woman, maybe you're praying, hopefully for a man. But what are you doing to get yourself ready? What, do you, what can we learn here? And there's a, a ton we can learn. Again, look at the kind of people that Boaz and Ruth are. The best way to become attractive to somebody else is your godliness. Did you know that? I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. And I even know that I'm telling it again. I'm not at the point yet where I've forgotten that I've said it. Right, Jim? Right. Uh, When I met Mandy, we met playing basketball. And the first thing that attracted me to her was she was good looking. We'll get to that in a moment. Her hair, her legs, her eyes. Then when we were together a short time later, I think we were watching a Bulls game in the student hangout place at UWL. And she was telling me about the party she went to the night before. And I was kind of like, oh, shoot. Because she was attractive to me. And then I was a Christian, and I was committed to marrying a Christian woman, and she had been out partying. She, she hadn't. Just, she had actually gone with one of her dorm mates to a party in order to kind of protect and evangelize her. Uh, whoa. She's hot, and she's godly. Right? And so... It's the godliness that should be the most attraction. We see that here. Boaz is an older man. He praises Ruth's wisdom and not just going after the young hot men. But she has, for the care of her mother-in-law, and choosing wisely chosen an older, godlier, wise man. And... Boaz is an older, wealthier man who could probably be very attractive to the young, hot women, not caring for their godliness. But he cares mainly that Ruth is worthy. And so how worthy are you as a young man or young woman? What's your attitude like? What's your godliness like? That's the the main way you can prepare for marriage. Focusing singularly on your godliness because you will attract what you are. 
largely. You will attract what you are. And so focus there. Focus on your godliness. But let's look at this issue of attractiveness. Notice in verse 3, Naomi directs Ruth to do herself up. To present herself in the most physically attractive way she can. Remember, we're just looking at how do we live this life under God who is utterly in control? Do you know that physical attraction matters? This is one of the lies that Christians say all the time. We just It's all spiritual. It doesn't matter what you look like. It does matter what you look like. Of course it does. It does matter. Now, I'm not saying there's like the ideal physical specimen. Like there are different types of people, different shapes, different colors, all of that. <clears throat> but are you presenting yourself well? We live in a very slovenly world, don't we? One of our senators showed up to the Senate in jogging pants. It's ridiculous. I, people show up to funerals in flip-flops and shorts. It's ridiculous. These are sober, important things, and we, we just are so slovenly. So we want to present our best. So if you're a young man, if you're a young woman, present yourself as best you can. You're going to have to discipline yourself to be as beautiful as you can because attraction matters. Now, young men, most of what I understand, I'm going way out on a limb here, thin ice. Most of what I understand attractive women is, of course, your attraction. Uh, but it's also that they, because a woman is knowing that what is in the offing for her in this marriage is children. And so the stakes are really high for her. And you have to be the kind of guy who, that she can trust. That's going to be stable and hardworking and can lead and protect Be that kind of a guy. Now, keep yourself in good physical shape. Dress nice. If you aren't the kind of guy who has any fashion sense, listen to your mom. And now for women, what is mostly attractive about you to men, I'm talking about physical attraction, is your physical beauty. Men are physically, visually attracted. Now you might say, oh, men are pigs. All they care about is, come on. Does not even nature show you this? Peacocks? I mean, doesn't nature show you that physical beauty matters? Don't we see it all throughout the Bible, how it comments on the physical beauty of a woman and how well she is taking care of herself? Now, of course, the danger here is that you think I'm like holding up some sexually erotic, skinny, busty woman. That, if you're a young man, that should revolt you. <laughs> what we're talking about is just a woman who is taking care of herself, presenting herself better. And gals, if you want to know from a guy what is most attractive, your hair really matters. Your body shape really matters. Now we're talking about modesty here. We're not talking about dressing like a prostitute. These things matter, don't they? 
So if you're a young woman or a young man hoping to get married and praying to God for it, do the best you can to present yourself as very marryable. These things matter. Lastly, the other thing that really matters here is sexual purity. Isn't this like one of the most compromising situations in all the Bible? <laughs> this is really crazy. Alone at night, after a party, and she uncovers a part of his body. This seems very sexually suggestive. Of course, one of the things is marriage is sexual. The, the thing that you'll do on your wedding night is engage in sexual intimacy. And part of what she's doing is saying that to him, I, I am offering myself to you, not in sexual immorality, but in marriage, which includes marital intimacy. But both of them are incredibly pure here. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but Boaz's care for Ruth's purity here is incredible. Why does he tell her to stay the night? That seems like bad advice. Why? The situation here would be like if your hopefully future wife is over hanging out with your family and you've played board games and it's midnight and there's 10 inches of fresh snow. And typically you wouldn't ask the girl to stay over the night. But for her safety, it's not wise to drive home. We're going to let... He's thinking about Ruth's safety here. It's not wise for a young woman to go walking around in the middle of the night. So he wants her safe. So he has her spend the night, but somewhat separate. Why does he give her grain to take home in the morning and leave while it's kind of still dawnish and you can't see real clear? Well, of course, so that nobody can recognize her and it wouldn't have any potential to damage her reputation. And the grain is both provision for her and her mother-in-law, but also, wouldn't that be a handy excuse if she ran into somebody and said, what are you doing? Collecting grain. <laughs> Ruth, Boaz is protecting her. So men, you are to protect the purity of women. And Naomi doesn't trade what she's looking for for sex here. Young women, what you, I think, will want more than anything is the emotional connection and intimacy of a man. And one of the dangers you'll have is to trade what he wants for that. You're looking for connection on an emotionally intimate level with a man and you'll trade what he wants, sexual contact, for that. And she doesn't do that here. So both of them are very pure. And if you want to prepare yourselves for marriage, if you want a marriage full of peace and rest, then commit to sexual purity. Don't involve yourself in sexual activity that you know in your conscience is not right. If you have to ask the question, am I going too far? You know you're going too far. Put away for pornography and fornication and living together outside the bounds of marriage. Put away any consideration of divorce. Parents, protect the purity of your children. Don't allow them to be in compromising situations. They will not like you for it, but tough nuts. So consider these things, trust in God, and let's act 
as well as we can in hope of his blessing. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply these things wisely and rightly. Help us to have faith in you and then act according to wisdom. Help us to have the humility and teachability that Pastor Mark spoke of. But doing it, seeking your blessing, knowing that all good things come from your hand alone, and so you deserve all of the glory. God, give us faith to be in your word. It is good and pure and perfect. And in keeping it, there is much blessing and much good. And so God, help us to have faith to do that as well. We look to, uh, we look to you now for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.